This is Our American Stories, and now it's time for our This Day in History, as always brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to learn all the things that are good in life and all the things that are beautiful in life. And by the way, if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. The Constitution 101 course I took, well, I learned more in that 10-hour course than in three hours at the University of Virginia School of Law. It's that good. Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. Today in 1798, the Sedition Act was passed, part of the Alien and Sedition Acts. Here's Monty Montgomery with a story. It's the summer of 1798. Our nation is brand new. And our second president, John Adams, has just signed the Alien and Sedition Acts. Here's Dr. Adam Carrington of Hillsdale College with more on what that meant. It's plural because there were four of them. There were two Alien Acts. One of them was called the Alien Enemies Acts, which gave the president basically unilateral power to remove adult males that were nationals of countries that we were currently at war with. The other was known as just the Alien Act or sometimes the Alien Friends Act. It said that even without war, a president could deport immigrants from another country if he thought that they posed some sort of threat or danger. The third was the Naturalization Act, which just extended how long someone that immigrated to the United States had to wait before applying for citizenship. It had been five years, this made it 14. And then finally, the uh, Sedition Act, which is actually the most famous of the group of acts, said that you could be prosecuted for saying a malicious or slanderous things about the Congress or the President of the United States or also if you were trying to go against the policy and positions of the United States broadly understood. But why were these acts passed? It turns out it had a little bit to do with Adams himself and how our nation felt about two countries across the Atlantic Ocean. To really understand where he was coming from in doing so, some people will attribute it to his personality. He tended to be a fairly prideful man, uh, uh, struggled with vanity, so maybe he didn't want to be criticized. But it, it was actually a lot more than that, even though you can't deny that that couldn't have played a part. You have to understand the broader context in America, and you have to understand the broader context in the world internationally, America was caught in a kind of geopolitical conflict between the two major powers of the time. And the two major powers, uh, if you remember the Cold War, sort of everyone gravitated, it seemed, toward either the United States or Russia. The equivalent, or, or somewhat equivalent at that time, was France and England. They were the two big geopolitical powers that faced off. And American politics itself, domestically, in many ways, its first divide, the first formation of political parties, was based off of should our international policy be more friendly to France 
or should it be a little more friendly to Great Britain? And much of the policy that France and Great Britain had toward us was depending upon whether we were being friendly to them. And so what starts to happen is the Federalist Party that John Adams was a part of thought that England was a better idea. The other party that was founded by Thomas Jefferson, who had lost to Adams in 1796, said that we need to be more friendly to France. Because the Federalists are in charge, when the French Revolution happens, they go and start to make treaties with Great Britain. They stop paying debts to the new French government, saying they owed it to the old king of France, not this new revolutionary government. And what they end up doing is siding with England over France. This not only enrages the Jeffersonians, it enrages France. When Adams takes over, something that starts up is what's called the Quasi-War, where we got into a conflict with France that was never declared, but involved a lot of French privateers taking out our shipping, all in reaction to the fact that the France thought we were not keeping up our obligations to them and we're going too much for Great Britain. As tensions heat up with France, the Federalists get more and more worried, not only about immigrants that might be from France or like-minded countries, but they get really nervous about how loyal and how on America's side are the Jeffersonians. Are they going to be too pro-French? Are they going to subvert the American Republic? And so what they end up doing is implementing first the immigration restrictions and then the sedition acts themselves, I think partly out of fear for the stability of government, fear of foreign influence, and worry that the, the international scene and the power of France in particular was going to undermine our own system and our own politics. The reaction to these laws was fast and negative, at least on the opposite side of the political debate. And two founding fathers, one the sitting vice president at the time, penned two political statements in response to it that were so controversial George Washington said, if systematically pursued, they would dissolve the union or produce coercion. The two most famous documents that come out of this are the Virginia and Kentucky resolutions. They were passed by the state legislatures of those two commonwealths. Partly they're famous because Jefferson ghost wrote the Kentucky Resolution, James Madison co-wrote the Virginia Resolution, and that's one of the arguments among several others that they make, that this violates the right to free speech, that basically it would be used and was used to punish dissenting opinion and freedom of the press. The reason Washington said these statements could potentially dissolve the Union? Well, that was because they also called for states to nullify or not follow federal law that they saw as contrary to the Constitution. But if you're wondering who some of these people who were prosecuted under the Sedition Act were, here's some examples of rather colorful commentary that got politicians and journalists alike arrested in the late 1700s. Matthew Lyon, a sitting congressman from Vermont who would later become famous for attacking another congressman with a fire poker on the floor of the House, wrote that the Adams administration was marred by ridiculous pomp and selfish avarice. And Luther Baldwin was indicted, convicted, and fined $100 for a drunken incident that occurred during a visit by President Adams to Newark, New Jersey. Upon hearing a gun report during a parade for Adams, he yelled, I hope it hits Adams in the butt. 
you know, you, you look at what was said and it really wouldn't strike us as anything that we wouldn't see on Twitter or on a blog today and really wouldn't come to the level that even outrages us now as far as, as discourse. It really was fairly standard even if vitrolic at times critiques of the president and Congress, and they didn't make it very far in the courts. The Jeffersonians, that is, because they didn't try to take these laws down in them. Instead, they simply waited until 1800, an election year. The main opponents to these laws really fought the battle out in the uh, court of public opinion, in elections, in state legislatures. It ended up being pretty disastrous for the Federalist Party. As the reality of these acts settled in, especially the Sedition Act, I think it really undermined them. It helped Jefferson to eke out a fairly narrow victory in 1800, but to gain a huge win in Congress. Congress, the Federalist Party, really got decimated in 1800, and I think it's partly as a reaction to this. And what then ended up happening was, not only did the Federalists lose the 1800 election, they really ceased after that election to be a viable national party. They limped along for another 12 years or so, but they never came close to winning the White House again. They never really came close to winning the House or Senate. They really became a regional party without much power. And as expected, the Sedition Act was allowed to expire when Jefferson took office, followed by the Alien Friends Act. But that doesn't mean all of the acts were destroyed by the Jeffersonians. The one that is still around that's interesting is a version of the Alien Enemies Act remains which again is the law that says that if we are at war with a country, nationals from that country can be deported basically unilaterally. And this was even used by the FDR administration during World War II. And this is distinct from the internment camps that are infamous now in American history. This was actually used on a variety of nationals um, to uh, uh, deport them during World War II. So not only did it re that one remain on the books slightly modified, uh, it was actually used as late as the 20th century. But if there's one thing that the Alien and Sedition Acts and their failure made clear, it's that our own rights are important. The right to f speak and write freely is central to a popular government's ability to peacefully adjudicate disputes between each other rather than either having a tyranny or having uh, a bloodshed that, 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 that you protect speech to protect peace and to protect the free flow of ideas. And great job as always to Monty and thanks as always to Hillsdale College for all they do. Again, go to hillsdale.edu to sign up for their terrific and free online courses. And by the way, it just shows this nation's been at battle with each other always since the beginning. Uh, there have been fights, but always, always we grow stronger because of them. And always, well, we have elections, these things called elections. And there is always the peaceful transfer of power each and every time. A unique attribute that this country enjoys. And there's not enough gratitude in and around a fact like that. The story of the Alien and Sedition Acts here on Our American Stories.
And we continue with Our American Stories. And now it's time for our Tocqueville Lives segment, where we hear about the associations that ordinary Americans form each and every day to solve problems in their communities. And of course, to just plain all enjoy each other. And by the way, Frenchman Alexis de Tocqueville came to this country to write about this grand experiment called democracy in the 19th century and came away with this book, a great book called Democracy in America. And he wrote extensively about the associations in this country. And I want to read for you a brief excerpt. And again, this is written in the 19th century. Quote, Americans of all ages, all conditions, all minds constantly unite. Not only do they have commercial and industrial associations in which all take part, but they also have a thousand other kinds, religious, moral, grave, futile, very general and very particular, immense and very small. Americans use associations to found seminaries, build inns, raise churches, distribute books, send missionaries. In this manner, they create hospitals, prisons, schools, and so much more. And today's Tocqueville Lives story comes from our own Joey Cortez. Brian Broadway started his own church in Claremont, Florida, outside the walls of a traditional church. Their original church of only about three families met out in the world in a park where they could serve the needs of the homeless. And beyond their Sunday church service, they served the poor in a parking lot of a Winn-Dixie grocery store. So one of my first encounters was when I went to the, the Winn-Dixie and I saw a car parked there and they would park there all day. They would park there earlier and later on that night. And I walked up to the people and I asked them if they need anything. And they had a little girl sit in the back seat. And they told me, no, we, we actually sleep here over the night. And then in the morning, we take my husband to work and then I, I stay here with, with their daughter. And the little daughter's in the back seat of the car and she's trying to get a light to read her book. And I'm just looking at it. that time, I've, I've got two daughters. And I'm looking at this cute little girl and I'm asking her questions and her name and she's telling me about her book. And I'm sitting there almost breaking down. Like, this is someone's child, and her concept of home, her concept of a place to be with her family is the backseat of a car. How does she invite a kid over to play when she lives from parking lot to parking lot? How does, how, how does she get her clothes clean? It was the first time that I actually realized that people's children call that home. That a child thinks that the current extent of her life is this backseat of this car. The child tonight at 1.30 in the morning with people walking around with will hear noises outside and be frightened because she's in the backseat of a car. There is no air conditioning running. There is no vehicle running. The windows are cracked and someone can reach into it. That she has to live through that. There's a difference when they've been there for a while. It's like the light that's inside of them. The light that drives every child that you see in their eyes and the smile. It's like that light died out. It's like watching the death of hope side of somebody, you see it, it's different. And when you have a conversation with one of them, it's a life changer. Whether you have kids or not, you can have kids, you, you might know a niece or a nephew, you might, if it's your child or your family, you would respond because you can tell the difference. And if we let that light stay out for too long, they're gonna stay that way. The life to them is gonna be a, gr a group of people passing them by. The life to them is just looking at people to see who else passes me by and has no concern about my existence. I sat there and I spoke to them about a half an hour, and then something happened. When I 
when I got up to leave and I said goodnight, I walked away. I felt like I felt like I, I felt like I had a problem breathing. I felt like everything in me was stopped functioning. My body just wasn't functioning. I felt like I, I can't even explain it. It, 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 felt, it felt like dying. It felt like saying there's something happening and you're doing nothing and you're walking away. And after I walked away from that girl, I, I decided I made a commitment. I said, I'm not walking away again without a plan. We have to come up with a plan. I'm not walking away from these children anymore. So then I, I got this idea and I named our outreach Find, Feed and Restore. And I figured if we can f give them a foundation first, you know, if we find them a job, then where do you find them at? Well, we don't know where they live, where their car is parked, where they're going to be sleeping at. We don't, they don't have a foundation and it's hard to build a life or build anything when you don't have a foundation to start with. So to me, the first foundation is housing. How do we get them housing? How do we give them a foundation they can build from? When I moved to Florida, one of the first jobs I got, even though I had no experience in it, I got a general manager job over an RV company. And I was running their whole lot and running their technicians. And so I began learning about travel trailers. We rented travel trailers. That's what we did. Travel trailers, fifth wheels, motorhomes. So I'd go out at least for an hour and a half a day and I'd sit with a technician. And I'd learn everything about them. I'd learn how they function, how to use them. And that some people lived them, out, lived them out here in the South. There was trailer parks and people lived in them. So then... Two years later, we're thinking of the outreach. And I'm like, wow, we can use travel trailers and give these people a home. I started researching, how do you write grants? How do you get funds? And that's when I found out that uh, grant writers cost two to $3,000 to write a grant. So then I had another roadblock. How, how do I do that? I don't have two to $3,000 to pay someone to write a grant. And there's no guarantee you win the grant after they write it. What do I do from there? And then after about a few days, just praying and wondering, what can I do? I need funds, but I can't afford to get funds. I can't get my first trailer. And then God gave me one word. I'll never forget it. I was sitting there at nighttime and he gave me one message. And the word was, learn. And that was it. That's all I had. After days of praying, after days of hoping, I got one word, learn. So at nighttime, when I come home from work, I'd play with my kids. My, my wife goes to bed at 10 or 11. I would get on my computer from 11 o'clock to sometimes 2 in the morning. And I would Google, how do you write a grant? I would YouTube, how to write a grant, grant tips, grant techniques. I took every free YouTube video and every free Google PDF that they had until I learned it. It took me almost a year and I learned it. First grant I ever won was a Walmart grant. I think it was $500. And you would have thought that I won half a million dollars. I was ecstatic. <laughs> I, was, I was so happy. Um, it was just the biggest thing for me because it's like, wow, this has never happened. Um, so we won our first grant and I started winning grants from public supermarkets, from different foundations. Um, and I started winning grants until we got, so we got our first trailer. We had a visitor come to our church. A lady that was only coming for a few weeks visited us and said, listen, I have a family trailer that we use for vacations and I left it in another state, but if you want it, you can have it. And she donated it with us. And we used the grant funds to tow it to get there. Um, and then when I started, I kept writing and then I won a thousand dollar grant. And then I won a $5,000 grant. Um, from 10,000 to 20,000, it kept climbing and escalating. Um, and from there, we built it up from the one trailer within two years, going from one trailer to eight trailers, and now eight trailers with duplexes. Um, but off of one word, that word was learn. But I'll never forget that. Never paid for a unit. We've only, they've always been donated for us. We just pay to upkeep them and keep them functioning. But Brian does much more than that too. He gives the families that join his program a vision and the tools to live a better life. 
When you come into our program, you live in the car. You don't have fresh food. You don't have anything. So when you come into a trailer, it's fully, it's fully stocked uh, from steak to sausage, uh, whatever it is you eat. We show them their units. We walk through how to maintain them and keep everything clean. We go over our process. We give you a, a life coach to help keep up with you and make sure that you're heading in the right direction. Uh, we do budgeting classes. Uh, we do meal planning. We do every, all the different services that we can do to help you get back on your feet according to the game plan we preset with you. They're allowed to stay there anywhere from six to eight months renting utilities free. And after six to eight months, they should be working and they'll get a bill for $200 a month for their rent and $50 a month for their electric. And they'll start paying those bills using the budgeting classes. They've learned things to budget their money and start paying the bills. After six to eight months, we hope to be able to get them into their own place, to get them into back into self-sufficiency where they own their own or, they ha- or they're out in their own apartment. Uh, we go over how to promote, get promoted at your job, putting forth your best effort, being on time, just some basic skills training. So that's our that's our main program goal: get get people from homeless to hopeful, into self-sufficient lifestyles. And our program has it's proven effective. The foundation first is key, or what they now call housing first. Getting them into a safe place to have a foundation, and then wrapping all the services around them that they need to become self-sufficient. And we found that to be most effective. Next week we're going to a closing. A lady bought her own park model trailer, and she's closing on it next week. And we're actually going to take pictures. That lady lived about six or seven blocks away from our church. She lived in a blue Chevy Malibu with a four-year-old and a six-year-old. And she lived there for four months with those kids. So to see her come from this to that, it's just, it's a life-changing, it's a life-changing event. And when we come back, we're going to hear more from Brian Broadway, the pastor of Living Message Church in Claremont, Florida. And by the way, we know this is happening all over the country, beautiful stories like this. From churches, civic organizations, send them to us, civic organizations, send them to us at OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Our Tocqueville Lives segment continues after these messages. This is Our American Stories. Turn to our American stories and to Brian Broadway's story. And I love that he had just mentioned a simple sentence, turning someone from homeless into hopeful. And again, no government help here, just a guy at church helping a person that was clearly in need of help. And again, Americans do this all the time, but our media, our press, well, they just like the train wreck. It's just what they do. And by the way, we like the train wreck too because we buy it. But here on our American stories, we don't do the train wreck. Uh, We do these kinds of stories because it represents who we are. Now let's return to Brian Broadway's story. For the past three years, from the trailers from last week to the trailers that's coming in two weeks, I cleaned them uh, with a team of another two, three people. So I've cleaned every single trailer we've had. So one thing with trailers is that trailers can't use regular toilet paper. They can't even use septic-safe toilet paper. They use what's called dissolvable toilet paper. It dissolves in water. 
You buy it at Walmart, but it's not in the toilet paper section. It's in the, tra the RV section, the auto section. You know, Walmart has that auto section across. You go to the auto section and they sell dissolvable toilet paper for RVs. Or you buy it from an RV store. So I, I try to, this is one of the things I tell people. And now I stock it. When someone, uh, someone comes to the trailer, I stock it for them. So a lady obviously didn't follow the instructions and she used regular paper. So I, she says the toilet's backed up. She goes, my kids just use the bathroom. There's poop coming above the top of the toilet. So it's about 11 o'clock at night. And I said, maybe I have to wait till tomorrow. She says, we'll sleep outside in the car. We can't take the, the smell. Um, we'll just we'll sleep outside. And my wife looks at me and she says, Brian, she has two, three kids, one with special needs. You have to go. So I'm like, you're right, I have to go. So I get up and I bring my plunger. I bring my normal stuff. And you can smell it from the outside of the trailer. And I walk into the trail. They stood outside. They weren't sitting the smell. So the family, the wife, the, mom, the lady, her mom, and the three kids sit outside. It's pitch black. It's 1130 at night. I'm in there trying to get this thing unstuck. There's poop all on the top of it. So then I had to go to the store, buy buckets, and I had to take scoop the poop out and put it into a container. So then what I forgot is that you should open up the valves before you start in the bottom of the trailer to get the pressure out. I didn't think because I just wanted to get this thing done with. So I start pushing and putting my tools in there to try to push it through and the thing backsplashes and it shoots. <laughs> it shoots over my chest, over my chin, and, uh, and I I just react. I run outside, I take my shirt off, I run, I'm running around, I'm, like, oh my, I'm screaming, I'm running around and I turn around and I realize that there's the three kids sitting down in this bleacher watching me like a madman run around with no shirt on. <laughs> from this poop that just shot out on me. So that that was a lesson on making sure you release the pressure in the tanks by opening up the tubes uh, before uh, before <laughs> before trying to clean them out. So there are certain things that I learned along the way <laughs> when cleaning trailers. But I always say, e even with that, when you, you come out kind of messy, I still walked away saying, God, I thank you that I have life to serve. I had the arms and the strength to do it. I, one day I won't be able to do it anymore, but I thank you that today I had the ability to do it. No matter how messy it was, you let me do it. But uh, still lessons you learned along the way. <laughs> and Brian, well, he's learned some more serious ones too. When we first started, we didn't know as much as we know now. So we've added on more things. Number one, we didn't realize the, the huge impact of bullying. That most of these kids go to school wearing the same outfit they wore yesterday, they're not clean because they washed up in the gas station where they just washed their face in the sink and they're being bullied. And we did, we were not, when we first started, we didn't even think about that. So we had to introduce, add into child counseling. So we found child counseling experts in our area and we write grants to be able to afford it. But we, for the kids being bullied, uh, we bring them to child therapists so they can learn to overcome and be comfortable going back to school. Um, so there was, there's a lot of pieces that we add on as we've learned um, what the main things are. So the, the, the counseling for the children is huge. Um, for the teenagers, what, what are their goals? You got a teenager, let's figure out their goals. What are they doing after school? What are their plans? What are they working towards? So we, tr we do it for everyone to make sure that everyone has a game plan of what they want to achieve and what they're trying to do. A big goal for a big problem. According to Brian, the need in his community is anything but small. <laughs> oh my gosh, it's huge. It is astounding. It's astoundingly huge. Every nonprofit calls us for housing. Every church calls us for housings. 
I mean, we're, we're churches with 2,000, 3,000 members call us with their members for housing. For some context on this, Brian has a congregation of only about 125 members, and the churches with thousands of members call him. The amount of communities that live in the woods is huge, especially in Florida, because there's so many, there's so much woods. You can move mad with a tent and no one's even know you're there. But the demand is huge. The amount of calls we get from the school system is huge. The amount of calls we get from the police department, that's huge. The police department put together their own homeless task force now just to try to keep them safe and try to figure out ways they can stay. Um, so the, the need is huge uh, in our area and throughout most of a lot of Lake County. The need is indeed huge. But for those fortunate enough to get into Brian's program, there's also a huge impact. Earlier this year, there's just been some amazing success stories. We have a couple that just graduated, the one that's on their home, and they still, and they donate to the program monthly, which to me is huge. That's just incredible. One lady, she graduated her program, and she was pretty quick. She actually worked at one of the local hospitals. And so she was a professional and fell in a hard time. She was left and she had three kids to tend to. And we got her into our program. We got her into subsidized childcare. We got everything set up for her. And then about maybe three and a half months to the program, she, she just called and she was excited. She said, thank you so much. I just got my own place. I'll be renting a home and um, I'll be done with the trailer by Friday. So we, you know, every time someone's done with a trailer, now some people leave you in a nice trailer that's semi-clean. And some people are so excited that they rush out, they grab all this stuff, and they just leave you all the mess. So you get both sides. So not knowing what we get, I go there with two or three people normally. So this time I went with two people. I brought all our cleaning supplies. We have our cleaning baskets set aside. And uh, we came in there, and I opened the door, and it smelled like lemons. I'm like, what is this? And I walked into the trailer. It was flawlessly cleaned. I mean, just unbelievably flawlessly clean. I was like, well, guys, we have nothing to do here. And then I went to the refrigerator. I said, well, let's clean the refrigerator out, and then we'll, we'll, we'll get the next group and restock for them. And I opened the refrigerator, and the refrigerator was full. And I opened the freezer, and the freezer was full. Not only was it full, every item, because I did the shopping for her, every item that I bought, she brought the same exact one and put it back, which means she actually wrote down everything I put in the refrigerator when she moved in. And the steak that I brought, she brought it back. I always buy a pack of sausage. I always buy an eight-pack of uh, chicken cutlets from the cook. She put an eight-pack back. She brought the same juice back. She put the bottled water back. She put the fruit back. Everything that I bought, she bought to the tea and put it all back in the refrigerator. Uh, this To the cereal, to the pasta, to the pasta sauces, to the canned beans that I bought. She brought every single item and put it back. And I was just so moved by that because no one has ever done that for us before. And what a story and what a voice. And that's Pastor Brian Broadway in Claremont, Florida. And again, Americans do this all over the country. We are a beautiful people. By the way, this story was brought to us by the Mortgage Family Foundation, and they've supported his work. And philanthropy, by the way, is another form of association in this great country. I wanted to close out right now with Brian talking about his favorite verse in the Bible and how it's been his source of inspiration. It's from Galatians. Let's take a listen as we close out here on Our American Stories. Grow not weary in well-doing, for if you grow not weary, you shall reap a reward in the end. But tells me that doing well is to be a part of my everyday life, and that the true reward is not what I get back on this earth. 
True reward is the reward I get from God when my time is done. My time will end on this earth. One day the, the sun will set on my existence. But the good news is that I did the work. I ran the race. I didn't grow weary in doing well. What I was born for, I completed. And that's why that verse has so much value to me. Do what you were born for and complete it. Do it well. Don't quit when it gets hard. Don't quit when people tell you you can't make it. Don't quit when you get a no. No, you're not getting the money. No, we can't help you. No, you don't get the trailer. No, you're not getting this. Don't quit at the nose. Push through it. Don't grow weary in doing what is well, what is good, what is just, what is kind. The reward that you receive is greater in the end. So that's, that's just my favorite. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanStories.com. That's OurAmericanStories.com. They're some of our favorites. And now it's time for our series, Energy is Life, where we explore the role of energy in our lives. We use energy every day, from cooking to heating and cooling our homes to traveling and powering our own devices. Today, our own Monty Montgomery talks to the author of The Age of Edison, a wonderful book on the time when light in America was at the forefront of technological development. I think Americans felt themselves to be exceptional for different reasons. When they first launched the country, they thought of themselves as distinctive because of the land, the continent that they were taking over. They thought of themselves as distinctive because they were providing a land of opportunity or access to democracy. But I think in the 19th, late 19th century, people started to think of the United States as a, as a country of inventors. You're listening to Dr. Ernest Freeberg, a distinguished humanities professor and departmental chair of history at the University of Tennessee. And according to him, there's a reason why we had that reputation of being a nation of inventors in the mid to late 1800s. Americans had a much wider public education system than counterparts in Europe. So many, many more people had at least the rudiments of, a, of an education in math and the ability to read. And there was a very lively scientific press, starting with things like Scientific American and Popular Science Monthly, that made the latest innovations in technology and science available to a, a much broader readership. Another piece of it was that Americans had a different kind of patent system than Europe did, which made it much easier to get a patent. The American patent system uh, was much more focused on making small incremental improvements to things that already existed. So if you're a worker and you find a way to make the machine that you're working on a little bit better, you could file for a patent and it wouldn't give you ownership of the whole machine, but it would give you ownership of that improvement. So it was a really a sweepstakes. And one of those things we incrementally improved over time was light. And we started improving with what we had been using for centuries, candles. Light really became a cultural struggle and a scientific struggle. And one of the first steps was the development of spermaceti candles. When we think about the whaling industry, that was all about light. That was about sending people around the globe 
to harvest sperm whales in order to have a brighter candle. It was a huge industry that itself was in turn largely destroyed by the development of kerosene, you know, mineral sources of light that were a little bit less hazardous to harvest and, and less expensive. But although kerosene derived from oil drilled up from the earth and gas lamps were an improvement upon spermaceti candles, which required men to go out in ships for months at a time to harvest whales for their fat so they could make them, it still had its faults, especially in certain places in which we take lighting for granted today. I think the most obvious example of it is the theater. Think about what a theater used to look like before electric light. The lights were gas lights, which would heat up a room enormously, would fill it with a kind of a noxious byproducts of gas, which was acidic and would actually actually start to destroy the fabric and you know of the stage curtains and the seats and that sort of thing over time. And people who went to the theater in that era would often complain about coming home and having a terrible headache, saying, you know, I went to the theater, I'm never doing it again, you know, I feel terrible the next day, kind of a kind of a gaslight hangover. And when electric light came onto the scene through progressive improvements, longer lasting filaments, and improving our electrical grid powered by coal and other resources brought up from the earth in the late eighteen hundreds, it opened up a whole new host of possibilities in the theater. And in the United States. When electric light came in, theater artists began to experiment with things you could do with electric light, which was much safer. You know, there were a lot of fires in theaters until the electric light came in. But you also, you could, use, you could use colored light to establish mood and, you know, shading and that sort of thing. Uh, you didn't have the flicker of flames. Lighting became much more a, a subtle art. You know, more than almost any other invention I can, I can think of, it was transformative for Americans. It changed the way people went to work and also how people played afterward. It made it possible for us to develop what has become the 24-7 work cycle. And then it changed the way people thought about the evening. Today, when we think about nightlife, that involves movie marquees and flashing lights on Broadway and the excitement of arcades and Coney Island and fancy restaurants with elegant lighting. So lighting really has become part of the experience of fun and uh, entertainment. You know, electric light was really a powerful tool for making that happen. And while it took a while for electric light to come into the home of the average American, that didn't mean the average American couldn't reap the benefits of it. One of the things I found fascinating about thinking about electric light is that it was very much a public amenity very, very quickly. You know, you might go home at night to a kerosene lamp after a long day as a, as a worker, but if you were to go out on a Saturday night and go to the downtown, the arcade or the amusement park or the local saloon, you would be experiencing electric light. Electric lights began to show up very early on the streets. It made the streets much safer. They were put into parks, skating rinks, toboggan rinks. So people of all classes got to enjoy the benefits of electric light fairly early. And lighting fundamentally changed how we think about our own spaces and how they reflect mood as well. Lighting designers in the home began to experiment with it too. There was the evolution of the whole idea of using light to create different kinds of moods. You have the light that generates excitement. You have the light that generates a sense of, of being sophisticated. As I was working on this book, I was thinking about the, the world of light that, and the sort of grammar of light that we now take for granted. 
when you walk into some restaurants, they're gleaming white and brightly lit, you know, and others are dimly lit. And they're, they're trying to tell you something about how you should experience the environment, the zone that you've moved into. And in the same way in our houses, you know, we have, might have a different kind of light in the kitchen than we do in the family room as opposed to the bedroom. These are kind of aesthetic choices uh, that were developed by electric light entrepreneurs, illumination engineers, and participated in by, by people as they started to change their relationship to light. And great job, as always, by Monty, and a special thanks to Ernest Freeberg. And his book is The Age of Edison. And my goodness, it is unimaginable to think about American life without electricity and without light. Our Energy is Life series, another chapter here on Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Overcoming physical tragedy is no small task, and it's important to hear stories of those that live everyday life well and beautifully with a handicap. Today we have Hayden Perkins' story. Hayden lives here in Oxford with his wife, Jessica, his three college-age sons, and four-year-old daughter. Here's Hayden. I'm a pediatric dentist, so I went to a couple of extra years, two extra years of training after dental school, and um, then I went through the whole board certification and stuff like that, so I'm board certified. I grew up in a little small town, a little small farm town called Hollandale, Mississippi over in the Delta. One of my earliest memories was my dad. There's an old cemetery on Lake Washington outside of Glen Allen where we, I pretty much grew up out there. My my grandparents owned a lot of farmland around there. And so we were on Lake Washington. My, my dad's aunts both lived on Lake Washington. His mother died here in childbirth. So his aunts basically raised him, and so they lived out there, and so he took care of them you know, as he got older. But when I was like maybe like 18 months old, his father died. And I remember I probably like two and a half or three, but being at the cemetery and, you know, throwing a ball or something like that, and, and then him hugging me and crying. And I, that was probably like my probably the earliest memory. My mom was kind of the disciplinarian. She was very, very tough. We didn't have like big family discussions and things like that, but we were close enough to where, you know, if we were having a problem, you know, we could, my parents were just working and busy and, but certainly later in life, you know, after I got hurt and things like that, that definitely helped me open up to them a lot more you know, about things. I was um, I was 15 years old. It was uh, November 9th, 1991. And I'm just 
sitting in the living room or something, and my best friend, Jessica Sullivan, she had this little mutt dog named Rascal, and it didn't have any hair. I mean, it was just, it. I mean, it probably should have been put down years before <laughs> all this happened, but her dad was a farmer, and he found it running around the farm one day and brought it home. One problem it has, it had seizures all the time. And so she called me crying, freaking out. Rascal's having a seizure. Can you take me to, to the vet? I'm like, yeah, I'll come get you. So she didn't have her license yet. So I went and got her and dropped her off. We went to the vet. And then her boyfriend, name was uh, Duke McCory, dropped her off at her boyfriend's house. I headed home and I stopped in Wayside got some gas and some chips or something, and that's I think that's when I remember I, di I didn't put my seatbelt back on. And I was driving a, a Mitsubishi Montero. It was kind of a newer vehicle, kind of the new thing Mitsubishi was putting out. It was an SUV, but they were real tall and boxy. It was a kind of overcast, real windy. I got about four or five miles down the road, and I think I, I reached down to changed the radio station or something, and a big gust of wind hit me and blew me off the road. And when I tried to come back on, I, that the, there was a big lip when I tried to come back on, and it, they think the like the front tire blew out or it just caught, and so I just turned sideways and, and just started flipping. And I went out the windshield, bounced down the road, couple hundred yards and ended up in a ditch. There was a vehicle coming towards me that stopped and then I mean, just by some miracle there was a sheriff about two miles behind me and he started out as an EMT. And so when they found me, I was in a ditch. I was complete, my body was completely contorted and twisted. So and I wasn't breathing because of my diaphragm. I mean, you can't breathe like that. And he knew to, he told the other guy to grab my legs and he grabbed my shoulders and they just, you know, they just wrenched me back. And as soon as they did, I, they said, you know, I started breathing. And I kind of came to and, and I was kind of in and out, you know, laying there. But I did, I did remember sitting up, you know, and then realizing, you know, and trying to just get up and realizing, you know, I couldn't move my legs. And so I just laid back down. They ended up taking me to, to the hospital in Greenville and then transporting me to Jackson. You know, you go through a denial stage for a while and, the, you know, the doctors don't wanna, don't wanna tell you, you know, it's, it's 100%, it's permanent. It's, you know, you're never gonna walk again. You know, so they always try to give you some good things. Well, we think it's just your spinal cord's just bruised. You know, it's not severed. And there are people that get hurt, and six months after and a year after, you know, they start getting, you know, movement and feeling back and stuff. But so there was always that that hope, that prayer, like, please let me start feeling, let me start walking. You know, it was a couple of, probably a couple of years before I gave up on that. It was tough in a sense that, you know, you're, you're 15. I think I was more embarrassed about being in a wheelchair. 
I mean, I remember my parents taking me back to school, you know, about my first day going back to school. It was just, I mean, it was just tough. And you can only imagine what that must be like. And we love telling these stories because you hear them right from the person themselves. And I know Hayden, he's my daughter's dentist, and he doesn't know it, but the guy is one of my heroes, the way he's lived his life. And when we come back, we'll continue with Hayden Perkins' story, a local story from our little patch of earth about an hour south of Memphis, Tennessee, Oxford, Mississippi. We continue with Hayden Perkins' story after these messages. This is Our American Stories. continue with our American stories and we've been listening to Hayden Perkins story he's a pediatric dentist right here in Oxford Mississippi where we broadcast we left off with Hayden telling us about his car accident that had led him to his life without the use of his legs we return to Hayden you know you're 15 and you're dating girls and that part was kind of hard in the beginning I guess now, you know, I, my support base was awesome. My friends were awesome. The school, everybody. I mean, you know, my friends never, you know, skipped a beat. They didn't allow me to not be involved and, you know, not do things. I mean, they'd just grab me and pick me up and throw me in the boat, you know, if we're going hunting. And, you know, that was a big help because it was just... You know, that first year or two, probably my freshman and sophomore year, where, um, you know, I just had a tough time. But something, I guess, just kind of clicked. And I basically was like, you know what? You can sit around feeling sorry for yourself and wishing, you know, what have been, you know, what could have been and whatever. Or you can move on and make the best of it. I kind of did, and I never looked back, really. Um, a lot of people can't get over it, can't get past, things like that. And I was just able to. And I have people ask me all the time, you know, I guess hint around about, well, if you could change things, what would it be? And honestly, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't go back and change it. It just, I think it kind of makes me, made me who I am. It's who I am. I'm, you know, Hayden Perkins. I'm the guy in the wheelchair. I mean, it just, I, I just, and I don't, I can't tell you the last time I thought about it. I mean, it's just the part of me. You know, I might, if I'm rolling around, I get, you know, my front wheel gets stuck on a rug or something, and I, you know, I kind of fall forward or something, you know, I might cuss and throw the rug around. But I don't, I don't think, you know, God, if it wasn't for the stupid wheelchair, if I wasn't in this wheelchair, I mean, that never comes into play. It's just a part of me. I don't see, it's like when I, when I see, Somebody else in a wheelchair, I think that person's in a wheelchair. But I don't, it, I, ne- I never see or I never, never see myself in a wheelchair. I don't, I don't know, it's hard to, kind of hard to explain. 
you know, like going back to, you know, if I could go back and change things, I wouldn't. I mean, I think it was part of what was supposed to happen. You know, I was, I didn't make good, didn't really care about my grades. And, you know, I was, you know, kind of the athlete and got most handsome and, you know, had the pretty girlfriend. And I don't think I was headed to a path to where I would be right now if it would not. I'm 100% convinced on it. I don't know where I'd be, but um, I know that for sure. And it made me, I think the whole injury and all of it helped to make me, I guess, maybe a fighter. I don't give up on things. I don't take no for If I get my head around something now, you know, I'm pretty darn determined. When I was in, started college, you know, I was trying to figure out what I want to do and you know, I don't even remember who said it. it was like, well, you know, computer science and all that stuff was just kind of getting revved up and you could, you know, make a lot of money, you know, and, you know, you, you, you can sit there, you, you can sit at a desk, work on computers, it's perfect, and they make a lot of money. I was like, okay. So I started out in computer science and I took my first calculus class and computer programming class and I was like, yeah, no. And then I had a... I was home for something, and I had a dental appointment with my dentist in Greenville. You know, we got to talking. I we I don't think we talked about me being a dentist, but that was when I decided, you know, this, would, this is right up my alley. I'm, I like hanging around people and taking care of people, and I, dentists pretty much sit down all day long. So I, I'm going to do that. And so I started, you know, I changed my major, and... You know, I had to really work hard, really had to study hard, you know, and I had people, well, you know, my parents even, well, I mean, you know, you need to have a backup plan. You know, what if you don't get in? And I, there was no backup plan. Uh, that's what I was going to do, and I was, I was, I was going to get in. It was summer break, so I was home for the summer. My friend, Jessica Sullivan, she, you know, always had a bunch of girls. One of them was... Jessica, Jessica Wood at the time. Anyway, and we had nobody had ever met her before, and I remember she coming out and she had this little green dress on, and everybody was, and of course, you know, we're guys, we're all in the car, you know. Golly, who's that? I don't know. I guess we kind of hit it off that night, and we ended up starting dating almost immediately after that. You know, I knew there were a, probably a, a lot of people in college that me being in a wheelchair kind of would have been, you know, a problem. Would have been a, an issue, you know, for dating or marrying or... I don't think she ever saw it either. She'd never allow me to use it, you know, as an excuse or... I don't ever remember it even coming up and talking about it. So we got married in May of 1995. 1995. So I was a... I was a junior... She was a senior, so I was studying ecology one night because right, I had changed my major to biology and pre-med, and so we were studying, and she calls me and says, you, you know, I, I think I might be pregnant. And I was like, what? And I was like, I just remember being like, okay. I, not irritated. Not irritated that she was she was saying that she was pregnant, but I was like, she's not pregnant. 
and I'm irritated. I got to stop studying. I got to go to Walmart and get a pregnancy test and go over to her house. So went in Walmart, you know, and I'm, you know, of course, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm like on that aisle looking and saying, so I get a pregnancy test and, and I go over and I'm, I'd gotten out of a wheelchair. I was sitting on my couch. She, you know, goes to the bathroom, comes back and when she hands it to me and it has a plus on it. And I remember us, it was the weirdest, uh, just a, a spontaneous response. We both just started dying out laughing. We just laughed hysterically. And then and then it kind of hit us. All right, well, what are we going to do? You know, there were a lot of stages in my life that got me kind of to where I am, and that was kind of, that was probably the, the next big one that really lit a fire under me and catapulted me, you know, to do even study even harder and do even better because it was it was kind of real then and it you know we say it all the time when we talk about it. I mean, it it matured us probably we grew up real real fast I think they were just kind of wake up calls being in a wheelchair or when I got hurt and then of course you know getting told that you're about to have a newborn baby and you're not not married and you're you know you're in college and it kind of changes things you know I think I would think back on it now and and I'm just like I don't know how the hell we did it but we did I think when you're younger like that you just it's just different like if I had to go back and do it all now at my age I just I couldn't do it but you're just kind of in survival mode trying to get to the trying to get to that next step you know, when I got in dental school, I mean, she got pregnant again. Spring of my freshman year of dental school, we had twins. You know, a lot of people would say, you know, God, how in the heck did you do dental school? And, you know, you had a two-year-old and twin newborns, and we just did it. It was life. We were just, you know working every day Jessica was working and I was basically had a full-time job with dental school and you you just made time for your family when you could and and looking back on it it was fine it was not that it didn't I guess it didn't seem that bad and my goodness what storytelling and what a voice he talked about the fact that he could sit around feeling sorry for himself wishing what might have been or you can get on with things. At the age of 15, after probably a year of, you know, just possibly and legitimately worrying or wondering or wandering, he said, I just got on with things. And honestly, he said, I wouldn't go back and change it. It's who I am. I'm the guy in the wheelchair. By the way, up until then, he said he didn't care about his grades. He didn't care about a lot, hanging out, playing some sports, and it, it changed who he was. He learned he was a fighter. And then, of course, he meets the love of his life, gets pregnant before he's married. Oh, my goodness. Yes, that happens, folks. And then what do you do about it? Well, folks, some people have the kid. And they have the kid young, and it's a good thing. As he said, it lit a fire under me. When we come back, we continue the story of Hayden Perkins, a real-life hero story. And they're all over this great country, stories like this, folks. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. Hayden Perkins' story, here on Our American Story. 
And we continue here with Our American Stories in our final segment of Hayden Perkins' story. He's a pediatric dentist that at the age of 15 was in a horrible accident that paralyzed him from the waist down. He married his wife Jessica in college and worked hard to become a pediatric dentist despite all the odds against him. Back to Hayden. You can't be a victim. You know, I, that we see that a lot these days. And, you know, there's always an excuse that I can't do something or because of this or, you know, whether it's, you know, an injury or something that's gender-based or race-based or, you know, anything like that. You know, it's just you can do anything you put your mind to, you want to. I've raised, I've, I've raised the boys that way, push them, push them, push them. I don't try to be, but I think I'm probably a pretty good example of you can do whatever you want to do. Um, you know, I had people tell me getting into dental school. I mean, I, I was, at the time, I, you know, I didn't know there was, I know there was some concern with the admissions board about me being able to, there were some questions in the interviews, you know, not real direct, but I could kind of see, that, you know, what they were about. All right, well, how's this gonna, how's this gonna work? I mean, how, he can't use his feet. I mean, how's he gonna do the wrist at, you know, the, the little pedal that controls everything? And that's something that I didn't, I never, I mean, I knew that was how it worked, but I, I didn't think about it. I didn't care. We'll figure it out. You know, how's he gonna keep his hands clean? And you know, just things like that. But I, you know, it's not something I ever really thought about or used, you know, as a a roadblock. I just never even. It's just one of those things. You, you, I'm. I, that's what I'm gonna do. I'm going to do it, and I'll figure. We'll figure out how to make it work. You know, sometimes I'll go in the rooms and. You know, they'll be surprised. And sometimes they'll even say something. I remember several times, you know, going, like today I was in the operating room, and I'll go I'll go into the room to talk to the parents, you know, before we, we go back. And a lot of times the grandmom will be there. Well, the grandmama wasn't at the initial appointment. You know, I'll go busting up in there, and, you know, and it's Susie, and, you know, I'm talking to little Susie. You ready to get your teeth cleaned and brushed and going through all the stuff, and I can see the grandmama just kind of almost a little confused. They're just surprised, you know, and they'll even, I've had even some of them ask, you know, I'll get to talking and, you know, she'll, you know, she'll say, this is your dentist. The older pop, I mean, they'll just ask you. I mean, they're, they're not embarrassed to, you know, ask a question and, um, you know, they're just a little surprised that, you know, and a lot of them think that it was that I was hurt after I went to dental school. It's a lot more shocking or surprising to them when, you know, I tell them, you know, I know I was hurt when I was 15 and, you know, and you still went to dental school? And like, yeah. I think that's a weird or strange observation that or reaction that people have that, you know, if you're disabled or there's just certain things you can't do or it's expected that, you know, you're not going to achieve real big things or, you know, after I was hurt, you know, obviously I I was depressed about, you know, a lot of things, but depressed that I couldn't do a lot of the things that I used to love doing. And, you know, football and 
you know, different sports and golf, and I still miss golf. You know, I, I get sad when we're down at the beach and, you know, the boys are, you know, they love playing golf. There are things like that that I do, you know, when I say I don't ever think about it or I don't, there are things like that that I do. I don't know if they make me sad, but, well, maybe I do. Maybe I get sad that, you know, I wish I could do that with them. Now, you know, Ann Hayden's four, we're down at the beach, you know, I wish I could walk down the beach with her, with, with the waves splashing and collect seashells. That's a specific thought, I guess, I've had, is going to the beach and, and not being able to play with her, or go out into the water and hold her up and, you know, like all the other dads are doing and anything that I can't do, if I run into it, you know, I might get a little sad or I think about it. You know, because I say, you know, you know, if I'm, a, if I put my mind to it, you can, you can do anything. Well, there are limitations on that. Okay, I can't, I can't get up and and run out into the water and and hold my little girl up on the beach. There are things like that that I might get a little emotional about or kind of sad about. But there are things that I do miss or the mit or maybe I miss out on that I wish I could do, but I don't lose sleep over it. And I think about it, and but then I, I just move on. I do something different. Life is short, and I, I've gone through periods in my life after I got hurt where you know I was down about things. Um, not maybe not my wheelchair, but you only got so much time here, and you gotta you gotta play with the hand you've been dealt. You just gotta pick yourself up and go. And that's what I've tried to do. And when I, I get I get down or, you know, worried about something or stressed about something, you know, I just try to remember, you know, how blessed I feel like I am to be where I am. Catch myself a lot of times saying, Hayden, really? I mean, you're really you're worried about that? Look at how successful you've been. Look at how much, you know, God has blessed you and, and you're worried about not having enough or wanting to do more or do this, you know, so you just gotta just gotta live life. That's all I can say. Lately, in the last couple of months, I've had like this anxiety stuff, you know, and I, I've about did I do enough, have I done this right, or golly, I should have done this in the past and why did I sell this? And I guess I'm middle aged. I worry about am I gonna be able to keep going? Statistically, paraplegics, quadriplegic, have a shorter lifespan. Not significantly, but it's, you looked at statistics, you know, you just don't live as long. And the main reason for that is, you know, you just, you have something going on and you don't know. A melanoma or something on your hip or, you know, or some kind of bladder cancer, something that you would, you know, you would have some pain or something from and you would, you know, you would go to your doctor about, I worry about that, you know, especially now I've got a little four-year-old and I still want to be around. For the most part, they're, they're irrational thoughts. It's things that you can't control. You know, it's things in the past that you, you did or you didn't do, things in the future that you cannot control. I mean, I can't control if I you know, if I 
I leave here and I get on the highway and I get hit by a Mack truck. You know, there's, you can't control that kind of stuff. So I think about that, like, why am I sitting here thinking about if I'm going to die at 62? I can do everything I can. I can go to the doctor every year or every six months and get a physical and do things earlier than most people say you should. So, you know, it's like a roller coaster for me. You know, I'm good. Like right now I'm talking about it and I'm good. And then I'll wake up at 2 a.m. having a panic attack. I'm working through it. I'm better. I'm good now. So it's just one of those, just another another thing in life that's happening, I guess. Do it as much as you can, and then you just got to give it to God and let it go. And then live. Life is too short. And my goodness, Hayden has taught a lot of us how to live here in our little town. He puts an annual fireworks presentation together, and it is not a little fireworks presentation. Thousands of people come. Food trucks come. And Hayden and his pals, they just take care of things and just bring the whole community together. Again, my little girl uh, has been getting her teeth worked on by Hayden. And Hayden, I'm lucky to consider him a guy I know and a guy I got to spend more time with. The story of Hayden Perkins, his wife Jessica, his beautiful kids, a life well-lived in a beautiful small town that we broadcast from, Oxford, Mississippi. That family story here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and we've been doing a healthcare series called Better Health at Lower Cost, brought to you by the Stetson Family Office. And this is our second on Alzheimer's. And we start off with a man named John talking about his wife, Carrie, and what it was like dropping her off at a memory care center. Today is the first day of the rest of my life. I took my wife to a memory care facility, the place where she will spend the rest of her life. There was no movie-style ending to the conclusion to the first part of our lives. No tearful goodbyes. I drive the 15 miles from our home without explanation. I take her hand and lead her into her new home. I tell her that she needs changes to her medication that require her to stay a few days. She smiles, but I do not sense a level of understanding. We are met and greeted warmly by several of the professional staff who guided us to the room that will be her new home. We walk slowly. She stops several times to admire the artwork that punctuates the hallway to her room. She has always loved art. Over the years, she passed on that appreciation to me one of the many gifts she gave me the first 50 years of our life together. We visited hundreds of art museums around the world and shared our enjoyment of some of the greatest masterpieces. Along the way, she gets excited about the pictures of other residents' children and grandchildren. She worked with children all of her life, 
and today they are the one thing that can get her to rise above her disease. She loves them all. We reached her room and she smiles again with recognition of many of the things she has loved through the years that I have secretly moved here. Her collections of Native American art, crystal hearts, and books catch her attention. She glances around the room, her eyes coming to rest on the many photographs of family and friends, living and deceased, and she beams yet again. They are all alive in her mind, and although many of the names are forgotten, the memory of their love and friendship is clear and strong. Far too soon, the support staff returns to divert her so that I can leave without her knowing I have gone. I leave thinking positively that we will continue to share experiences as we have in the past. I will just have to share those experiences for the both of us. I have memories of the past and hopes for the future, but Alzheimer's has taught me the importance of the moment. Nothing else really matters. Each day is complete with its victories and setbacks, and I rejoice or feel sorrow as each occurs. Tomorrow is very far away. This story is one that is told over and over. Same story, different people. This is just one of many of those whose spouse or family member has been diagnosed with Alzheimer's. David Dolby, the son of Ray Dolby, an inventor and the man who created Dolby Sound, decided to take initiative along with his mother when his father Ray was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. He's been involved since 2010. Uh, my name is David Dolby. I live in San Francisco and I'm working on a number of different initiatives uh, to help accelerate the path to a cure for Alzheimer's disease. And I do this through our family foundation called the Ray and Dagmar Dolby Family Fund, uh, as well as through our family office uh, venture capital fund called Dolby Family Ventures. And one thing that struck me early on in learning about Alzheimer's disease was there were many gaps that were slowing down the pace of innovation and the rate of discovery and the impediment to allowing investors to gain confidence in opportunities. Uh, many of the largest companies in the pharma space looking at neurodegenerative diseases had been uh, becoming more reluctant to double down on investments. They were watching many failures in the space as uh, drugs proceeded into the clinic and undergoing human clinical trials with, with negative results. And so uh, really our, our initiatives are all in, in service to fill the funnel with drugs in the pipeline, being able to better characterize and identify patients, and uh, really give alternative uh, innovative ideas uh, an opportunity to be tested. My father uh, was Ray Dolby, an American inventor. Uh, when he was in his late 70s, he uh, received a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease, and we quickly became aware that there wasn't a disease-modifying drug available to him or to anybody. We knew we wanted to spring into action, uh, and the, the way we knew how was to sort of follow in his footsteps of uh, investing in innovation and identifying uh, people that were taking risk in the space and working on important and challenging problems uh, and really try and understand what's the right 
set of questions to ask at each step along the way. What is our theory of causality of the disease? Alzheimer's disease is composed of a, a number of different factors which contribute to each individual's uh, resilience as well as their vulnerability to uh, be affected by uh, bad actors that are either native to our systems with mutation or uh, infections that come about or really the, uh, the cascading effects of other environmental factors or factors of aging. Uh, it's only been in the last uh, perhaps 30 or 40 years that we've started to fully accept that uh, d dementia is not a normal part of aging and that it's something we believe we can reverse and that the way to uh, address this is to understand at what stage of progression is it still possible to interrupt these processes and ideally also reverse the effects. It is impossible for just one group to have all the funds that they need in the discovery of the prevention and cure of this disease. This is a project the whole world has had to gather together in order to find answers. The FINGER study, which is the Finnish Geriatric Intervention Study to Prevent Cognitive Impairment and Disability, investigated the effects of a two-year intervention, targeting several lifestyle and vascular risk factors simultaneously. The main aim is to prevent cognitive impairment, and secondary aims include decreasing disability, cardiovascular risk factors and related morbidities, depressive symptoms, and to have beneficial effects on the quality of life. Here's the lead researcher, Mia Kivipelto. I was, the, I was the person starting the finger trial. I'm a physician, I'm MD. So for me, it has been always kind of interesting to work with interventions as well, really trying to move from observation to action. So I felt that now it's time to initiate something new. So I simply took the group and we researched money and started the finger trial. That was 10 years ago. I have actually my grandmother uh, who got Alzheimer when I was young. I was a teenager. She was living in the same house where I was living. At that time, it took very long time before she got the diagnosis. So I still can remember the feeling. She, she was very close to me. And when she was, you know, changing her behavior, she was trying to hide things. She got a little bit different kind of personality. So that personal experience has helped me to understand how much Alzheimer's can mean for you and how important it is to try to find new means. Two-year multi-center randomized controlled trial with 1,260 participants aged 60 to 70 years recruited from previous studies. Participants were randomized into either the multi-domain intervention group or the control group. And the intervention was two years. And really, the results have been very encouraging. There have been earlier very many negative trials, but the earlier ones have been using single domain intervention. That means that they have been mainly focusing only on one intervention or one risk factor, for example, physical activity. So the results were very clear. There was a clear difference in cognition. So here the intervention group had 25% higher improvement. And finally, we can also see that even the risk for cognitive and functional decline is lower in the intervention group and they have better health-related quality of life 
even the risk of other diseases. Finger and Finger Study has come to mean more than its original acronym. Now, it symbolizes all hands and fingers across the world coming together to find the cure and prevention for this disease. The Cooper Clinic of Preventive Medicine, located in Dallas, Texas, has some suggestions for living a brain-healthy lifestyle. Things like exercising your mind daily with crossword puzzles or Scrabble, getting at least 30 minutes of exercise a day. We have all become very aware that heart disease is the leading cause of death in the United States. But Dr. Cooper also encourages us to remember that what is good for your heart is also good for your brain. I'm Faith Garcia, and this is Our American Stories. And great job as always, Faith. And we'll bring you more stories about Alzheimer's because it touches so many millions of American families and our scientific community is hard at work trying to get solutions. This is Lee Habib, John and Kerry's story, the Dolby family story, so many families in this country's stories here on Our American Stories. Stories.